Part One of Rappaccini's Daughter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Neufeld. Mosses from an Old Manse by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Rappaccini's Daughter. Part One. A young man named Giovanni Guasconti came very long ago from the more southern region of Italy to pursue his studies at the University of Padua. Giovanni, who had but a scanty supply of gold ducats in his pocket, took lodgings in a high and gloomy chamber of an old edifice which looked not unworthy to have been the palace of a Paduan noble, and which, in fact, exhibited over its entrance the armorial bearings of a family long since extinct. The young stranger, who was not unstudied in the great poem of his country, recollected that one of the ancestors of this family, and perhaps an occupant of this very mansion, had been pictured by Dante as a partaker of the immortal agonies of his inferno. These reminiscences and associations, together with the tendency to heartbreak natural to a young man for the first time out of his native sphere, caused Giovanni to sigh heavily as he looked around the desolate and ill-furnished apartment. "'Holy Virgin, signor!' cried old dame Lisabetta, who, won by the youth's remarkable beauty of person, was kindly endeavouring to give the chamber a habitable air. "'What a sigh was that to come out of a young man's heart! Do you find this old mansion gloomy? For the love of heaven, then, put your head out of the window, and you will see as bright sunshine as you left in Naples. Quasconti mechanically did as the old woman advised, but could not quite agree with her that the Paduan sunshine was as cheerful as that of southern Italy. Such as it was, however, it fell upon a garden beneath the window, and expended its fostering influences on a variety of plants, which seemed to have been cultivated with exceeding care. "'Does this garden belong to the house?' asked Giovanni. "'Heaven forbid, signor, unless it were fruitful of better pot-herbs than any that grow there now,' answered old Lisabetta. "'No, that garden is cultivated by the own hands of signor Giacomo Rappaccini, the famous doctor, who, I warrant him, has been heard of as far as Naples.' It is said that he distills these plants into medicines that are as potent as a charm. Oftentimes you may see the signor doctor at work, and perchance the signora, his daughter, too, gathering the strange flowers that grow in the garden. The old woman had now done what she could for the aspect of the chamber, and commending the young man to the protection of the saints, took her departure. Giovanni still found no better occupation than to look down into the garden beneath his window. From its appearance he judged it to be one of those botanic gardens which were of earlier date in Padua than elsewhere in Italy, or in the world. Or, not improbably, it might once have been the pleasure-place of an opulent family, for there was the ruin of a marble fountain in the centre, sculptured with rare art, but so woefully shattered that it was impossible to trace the original design from the chaos of remaining fragments. The water, however, continued to gush and sparkle into the sunbeams as cheerfully as ever. A little gurgling sound ascended to the young man's window, 
and made him feel as if the fountain were an immortal spirit that sung its song unceasingly and without heeding the vicissitudes around it while one century embodied it in marble and another scattered the perishable garniture on the soil all about the pool into which the water subsided grew various plants that seemed to require a plentiful supply of moisture for the nourishment of gigantic leaves and in some instances flowers gorgeously magnificent there was one shrub in particular set in a marble vase in the midst of the pool that bore a profusion of purple blossoms each of them had the lustre and richness of a gem and the whole together made a show so resplendent that it seemed enough to illuminate the garden even had there been no sunshine every portion of the soil was peopled with plants and herbs which if less beautiful still bore tokens of assiduous care as if all had their individual virtues known to the scientific mind that fostered them some were placed in urns rich with old carving and others in common garden pots some crept serpent-like along the ground or climbed on high using whatever means of ascent was offered them one plant had wreathed itself around a statue of vertumnus which was thus quite veiled and shrouded in a drapery of hanging foliage so happily arranged that it might have served a sculptor for a study while giovanni stood at the window he heard a rustling behind a screen of leaves and became aware that a person was at work in the garden his figure soon emerged into view and showed itself to be that of no common labourer but a tall emaciated sallow and sickly-looking man dressed in a scholar's garb of black he was beyond the middle term of life with grey hair a thin grey beard and a face singularly marked with intellect and cultivation but which could never even in his more youthful days have expressed much warmth of heart nothing could exceed the intentness with which this scientific gardener examined every shrub which grew in his path it seemed as if he was looking into their inmost nature making observations in regard to their creative essence and discovering why one leaf grew in this shape and another in that and wherefore such and such flowers differed among themselves in hue and perfume nevertheless in spite of this deep intelligence on his part there was no approach to intimacy between himself and these vegetable existences on the contrary he avoided their actual touch or the direct inhaling of their odours with a caution that impressed giovanni most disagreeably for the man's demeanour was that of one walking among malignant influences such as savage beasts or deadly snakes or evil spirits which should he allow them one moment of license would wreak upon him some terrible fatality it was strangely frightful to the young man's imagination to see this air of insecurity in a person cultivating a garden that most simple and innocent of human toils and which had been alike the joy and labour of the unfallen parents of the race was this garden then the eden of the present world and this man with such a perception of harm in what his own hands caused to grow was he the adam the distrustful gardener while plucking away the dead leaves or pruning the too luxuriant growth of the shrubs defended his hands with a pair of thick gloves 
nor were these his only armor. When, in his walk through the garden, he came to the magnificent plant that hung its purple gems beside the marble fountain, he placed a kind of mask over his mouth and nostrils, as if all this beauty did but conceal a deadlier malice. But finding his task still too dangerous, he drew back, removed the mask, and called loudly, but in the infirm voice of a person affected with inward disease, Beatrice! Beatrice! Here I am, my father. What would you? cried a rich and youthful voice from the window of the opposite house, a voice as rich as a tropical sunset, and which made Giovanni, though he knew not why, think of deep hues of purple or crimson, and of perfumes heavily delectable. Are you in the garden? Yes, Beatrice, answered the gardener, and I need your help. Soon there emerged from under the sculptured portal the figure of a young girl, arrayed with as much richness of taste as the most splendid of the flowers, beautiful as the day, and with a bloom so deep and vivid that one shade more would have been too much. She looked redundant with life, health, and energy, all of which attributes were bound down and compressed, as it were, and girdled tensely in their luxuriance by her virgin zone. Yet Giovanni's fancy must have grown morbid while he looked out into the garden, for the impression which the fair stranger made upon him was as if here was another flower, the human sister of those vegetable ones, as beautiful as they, more beautiful than the richest of them, but still to be touched only with a glove, nor to be approached without a mask. As Beatrice came down the garden path, it was observable that she handled and inhaled the odour of several of the plants which her father had most sedulously avoided. "'Here, Beatrice,' said the latter, "'see how many needful offices require to be done to our chief treasure. Yet, shattered as I am, my life might pay the penalty of approaching it so closely as circumstances demand. Henceforth, I fear, this plant must be consigned to your sole charge. And gladly will I undertake it, cried again the rich tones of the young lady, as she bent towards the magnificent plant and opened her arms as if to embrace it. Yes, my sister, my splendour, it shall be Beatrice's task to nurse and serve thee, and thou shalt reward her with thy kisses and perfumed breath, which to her is as the breath of life. Then, with all the tenderness in her manner that was so strikingly expressed in her words, she busied herself with such attentions as the plant seemed to require, and Giovanni, at his lofty window, rubbed his eyes and almost doubted whether it were a girl tending her favourite flower, or one sister performing the duties of affection to another. The scene soon terminated. Whether Dr. Rappaccini had finished his labours in the garden, or that his watchful eye had caught the stranger's face, he now took his daughter's arm and retired. Night was already closing in. Oppressive exhalations seemed to proceed from the plants and steal upward past the open window, and Giovanni, closing the lattice, went to his couch and dreamed of a rich flower and beautiful girl. 
flower and maiden were different and yet the same and fraught with some strange peril in either shape but there is an influence in the light of morning that tends to rectify whatever errors of fancy or even of judgment we may have incurred during the sun's decline or among the shadows of the night or in the less wholesome glow of moonshine giovanni's first movement on starting from sleep was to throw open the window and gaze down into the garden which his dreams had made so fertile of mysteries he was surprised and a little ashamed to find how real and matter-of-fact an affair it proved to be in the first rays of the sun which gilded the dewdrops that hung upon leaf and blossom and while giving a brighter beauty to each rare flower brought everything within the limits of ordinary experience the young man rejoiced that in the heart of the barren city he had the privilege of overlooking this spot of lovely and luxuriant vegetation it would serve he said to himself as a symbolic language to keep him in communion with nature neither the sickly and thought-worn dr giacomo rappaccini it is true nor his brilliant daughter were now visible so that giovanni could not determine how much of the singularity which he attributed to both was due to their own qualities and how much to his wonder-working fancy but he was inclined to take a most rational view of the whole matter in the course of the day he paid his respects to signor pietro baglioni professor of medicine in the university a physician of eminent repute to whom giovanni had brought a letter of introduction the professor was an elderly personage apparently of genial nature and habits that might almost be called jovial he kept the young man to dinner and made himself very agreeable by the freedom and liveliness of his conversation especially when warmed by a flask or two of tuscan wine giovanni conceiving that men of science inhabitants of the same city must needs be on familiar terms with one another took an opportunity to mention the name of dr rappaccini but the professor did not respond with so much cordiality as he had anticipated ill would it become a teacher of the divine art of medicine said professor pietro baglioni in answer to a question of giovanni to withhold due and well-considered praise of a physician so eminently skilled as rappaccini but on the other hand i should answer it but scantily to my conscience were i to permit a worthy youth like yourself signor giovanni the son of an ancient friend to imbibe erroneous ideas respecting a man who might hereafter chance to hold your life and death in his hands the truth is our worshipful dr rappaccini has as much science as any member of the faculty with perhaps one single exception in padua or all italy but there are certain grave objections to his professional character and what are they asked the young man has my friend chauffani any disease of body or heart that he is so inquisitive about physicians said the professor with a smile but as for rappaccini it is said of him and i who know the man well can answer for its truth that he cares infinitely more for science than for mankind his patients are interesting to him only as subjects for some new experiment he would sacrifice human life his own among the rest 
or whatever else was dearest to him, for the sake of adding so much as a grain of mustard-seed to the great heap of his accumulated knowledge. "'Methinks he is an awful man indeed,' remarked Guasconti, mentally recalling the cold and purely intellectual aspect of Rappaccini. "'And yet, worshipful professor, is it not a noble spirit? Are there many men capable of so spiritual a love of science?' "'God forbid!' answered the professor, somewhat testily, at least unless they take sounder views of the healing art than those adopted by Rappaccini. It is his theory that all medicinal virtues are comprised within those substances which we term vegetable poisons. These he cultivates with his own hands, and is said even to have produced new varieties of poison, more horribly deleterious than nature, without the assistance of this learned person, would ever have plagued the world withal. That the senior doctor does less mischief than might be expected with such dangerous substances is undeniable. Now and then, it must be owned, he has effected, or seemed to effect, a marvellous cure. But to tell you my private mind, Signor Giovanni, he should receive little credit for such instances of success, they being probably the work of chance, but should be held strictly accountable for his failures, which may justly be considered his own work. The youth might have taken Barlioni's opinions with many grains of allowance, had he known that there was a professional warfare of long continuance between him and Dr. Rappaccini, in which the latter was generally thought to have gained the advantage. If the reader be inclined to judge for himself, we refer him to certain black-letter tracts on both sides, preserved in the medical department of the University of Padua. "'I know not, most learned professor,' returned Giovanni, after musing on what had been said of Rappaccini's exclusive zeal for science, "'I know not how dearly this physician may love his art, but surely there is one object more dear to him. He has a daughter.' "'Aha!' cried the professor, with a laugh. "'So now our friend Giovanni's secret is out you have heard of his daughter whom all the young men in padua are wild about though not half a dozen have ever had the good hap to see her face i know little of the signora beatrice save that rappaccini is said to have instructed her deeply in his science and that young and beautiful as fame reports her she is already qualified to fill a professor's chair perchance her father destines her for mine other absurd rumours there be, not worth talking about or listening to. So now, Signor Giovanni, drink off your glass of lacrima. Guasconti returned to his lodging somewhat heated with the wine he had quaffed, and which caused his brain to swim with strange fantasies in reference to Dr. Rappaccini and the beautiful Beatrice. On his way, happening to pass by a florist's, he bought a fresh bouquet of flowers. Ascending to his chamber, he seated himself near the window, but within the shadow thrown by the depth of the wall, so that he could look down into the garden with little risk of being discovered. All beneath his eye was a solitude. The strange plants were basking in the sunshine, and now and then nodding gently to one another, as if in acknowledgment of sympathy and kindred. In the midst, by the shattered fountain, grew the magnificent shrub, 
with its purple gems clustering all over it. They glowed in the air, and gleamed back again out of the depths of the pool, which thus seemed to overflow with coloured radiance from the rich reflection that was steeped in it. At first, as we have said, the garden was a solitude. Soon, however, as Giovanni had half hoped, half feared would be the case, a figure appeared beneath the antique sculptured portal, and came down between the rows of plants, inhaling their various perfumes as if she were one of those beings of old classic fable that lived upon sweet odours. On again beholding Beatrice, the young man was even startled to perceive how much her beauty exceeded his recollection of it. So brilliant, so vivid was its character, that she glowed amid the sunlight, and, as Giovanni whispered to himself, positively illuminated the more shadowy intervals of the garden path. Her face being now more revealed than on the former occasion, he was struck by its expression of simplicity and sweetness, qualities that had not entered into his idea of her character, and which made him ask anew what manner of mortal she might be. Nor did he fail again to observe or imagine an analogy between the beautiful girl and the gorgeous shrub that hung its gem-like flowers over the fountain, a resemblance which Beatrice seemed to have indulged a fantastic humour in heightening, both by the arrangement of her dress and the selection of its hues. Approaching the shrub, she threw open her arms, as with a passionate ardour, and drew its branches into an intimate embrace, so intimate that her features were hidden in its leafy bosom, and her glistening ringlets all intermingled with the flowers. "'Give me thy breath, my sister,' exclaimed Beatrice, "'for I am faint with common air, and give me this flower of thine, which I separate with gentlest fingers from the stem, and place it close beside my heart.' With these words, the beautiful daughter of Rappaccini plucked one of the richest blossoms of the shrub, and was about to fasten it to her bosom. But now, unless Giovanni's draughts of wine had bewildered his senses, a singular incident occurred. A small, orange-coloured reptile, of the lizard or chameleon species, chanced to be creeping along the path just at the feet of Beatrice. It appeared to Giovanni but at the distance from which he gazed he could scarcely have seen anything so minute, it appeared to him, however, that a drop or two of moisture from the broken stem of the flower descended upon the lizard's head. For an instant the reptile contorted itself violently, and then lay motionless in the sunshine. Beatrice observed this remarkable phenomenon, and crossed herself, sadly, but without surprise nor did she therefore hesitate to arrange the fatal flower in her bosom. There it blushed, and almost glimmered, with the dazzling effect of a precious stone, adding to her dress and aspect the one appropriate charm which nothing else in the world could have supplied. But Giovanni, out of the shadow of his window, bent forward and shrank back, and murmured and trembled. "'Am I awake?' have i my senses said he to himself what is this being beautiful shall i call her or inexpressibly terrible beatrice now strayed carelessly through the garden 
approaching closer beneath Giovanni's window, so that he was compelled to thrust his head quite out of its concealment, in order to gratify the intense and painful curiosity which she excited. At this moment there came a beautiful insect over the garden wall. It had, perhaps, wandered through the city, and found no flowers or verdure among those antique haunts of men, until the heavy perfumes of Dr. Rappaccini's shrubs had lured it from afar. Without alighting on the flowers, this winged brightness seemed to be attracted to Beatrice, and lingered in the air and fluttered about her head. Now, here it could not be but that Giovanni Guasconte's eyes deceived him. Be that as it might, he fancied that, while Beatrice was gazing at the insect with childish delight, it grew faint and fell at her feet. Its bright wings shivered. It was dead, from no cause that he could discern, unless it were the atmosphere of her breath. Again Beatrice crossed herself and sighed heavily as she bent over the dead insect. An impulsive moment of Giovanni drew her eyes to the window. There she beheld the beautiful head of the young man, rather a Grecian than an Italian head, with fair regular features and a glistening of gold among his ringlets, gazing down upon her like a being that hovered in mid-air. Scarcely knowing what he did, Giovanni threw down the bouquet which he had hitherto held in his hand. "'Signora,' said he, "'there are pure and beautiful flowers. Wear them for the sake of Giovanni Guasconti.' "'Thanks, signor,' replied Beatrice, with her rich voice that came forth as it were like a gush of music, and with a mirthful expression half childish and half womanlike. I accept your gift, and would fain recompense it with this precious purple flower. But if I toss it into the air, it will not reach you. So, Signor Guasconte must even content himself with my thanks. She lifted the bouquet from the ground, and then, as if inwardly ashamed at having stepped aside from her maidenly reserve, to respond to a stranger's greeting, passed swiftly homeward through the garden. But few as the moments were, it seemed to Giovanni, when she was on the point of vanishing beneath the sculptured portal, that his beautiful bouquet was already beginning to wither in her grasp. It was an idle thought. There could be no possibility of distinguishing a faded flower from a fresh one at so great a distance. For many days after this incident the young man avoided the window that looked into Dr. Rappaccini's garden, as if something ugly and monstrous would have blasted his eyesight had he been betrayed into a glance. He felt conscious of having put himself, to a certain extent, within the influence of an unintelligible power by the communication which he had opened with Beatrice. The wisest course would have been, if his heart were in any real danger, to quit his lodgings in Padua itself at once. The next wiser, to have accustomed himself, as far as possible, to the familiar and daylight view of Beatrice, thus bringing her rigidly and systematically within the limits of ordinary existence. Least of all, while avoiding her sight, ought Giovanni to have remained so near this extraordinary being that the proximity and possibility even of intercourse should give a kind of substance and reality 
to the wild vagaries which his imagination ran riot continually in producing. Guasconte had not a deep heart, or, at all events, its depths were not sounded now, but he had a quick fancy, and an ardent southern temperament, which rose every instant to a higher fever pitch. Whether or no Beatrice possessed those terrible attributes, the fatal breath, the affinity with those so beautiful and deadly flowers which were indicated by what Giovanni had witnessed, she had at least instilled a fierce and subtle poison into his system. It was not love, although her rich beauty was a madness to him, nor horror, even while he fancied her spirit to be imbued with some baneful essence that seemed to pervade her physical frame, but a wild offspring of both love and horror that had each parent in it, and burned like one and shivered like the other. Giovanni knew not what to dread, still less did he know what to hope, yet hope and dread kept a continual warfare in his breast, alternately vanquishing one another and starting up afresh to renew the contest. Blessed are all simple emotions, be they dark or bright. It is the lurid intermixture of the two that produces the illuminating blaze of the infernal regions. Sometimes he endeavoured to assuage the fever of his spirits by a rapid walk through the streets of Padua, or beyond its gates. His footsteps kept time with the throbbings of his brain, so that the walk was apt to accelerate itself to a race. One day he found himself arrested. His arm was seized by a portly personage, who had turned back on recognizing the young man, and expended much breath in overtaking him. "'Signor Giovanni, stay, my good friend,' cried he. "'Have you forgotten me?' Oh, "'That might be well the case, if I were as much altered as you yourself.' It was Baglioni, whom Giovanni had avoided ever since their first meeting, from a doubt that the professor's sagacity would look too deeply into his secrets. Endeavouring to recover himself, he stared forth wildly from his inner world into the outer one, and spoke like a man in a dream. "'Yes, I am Giovanni Guasconti. You are Professor Pietro Baglioni. Now let me pass.' "'Not yet, not yet, Signor Giovanni Guasconti,' said the professor, smiling, but at the same time scrutinizing the youth with an earnest glance. "'What? Did I grow up side by side with your father, and shall his son pass me like a stranger in these old streets of Padua? Stand still, Signor Giovanni, for we must have a word or two before we part. Speedily, then, most worshipful professor, speedily, said Giovanni, with feverish impatience. Does not your worship see that I am in haste? Now, while he was speaking, there came a man in black along the street, stooping and moving feebly like a person in inferior health. His face was all overspread with a most sickly and sallow hue, but so pervaded with an expression of piercing and active intellect that an observer might easily have overlooked the merely physical attributes and have seen only this wonderful energy. As he passed, this person exchanged a cold and distant salutation with Baglioni, but fixed his eyes upon Giovanni with an intentness that seemed to bring out whatever was within him worthy of notice. 
Nevertheless, there was a peculiar quietness in the look, as if taking merely a speculative, not a human interest in the young man. "'It is Dr. Rappaccini,' whispered the professor when the stranger had passed. "'Has he ever seen your face before?' "'Not that I know,' answered Giovanni, starting at the name. "'He has seen you. He must have seen you,' said Baglioni hastily. "'For some purpose or other this man of science is making a study of you. I know that look of his. It is the same that coldly illuminates his face as he bends over a bird, a mouse, or a butterfly, which, in pursuance of some experiment, he has killed by the perfume of a flower. A look as deep as nature itself, but without nature's warmth of love. Signor Giovanni, I will stake my life upon it. You are the subject of one of Rappaccini's experiments. "'Will you make a fool of me?' cried Giovanni, passionately. "'That, Signor Professor, were an untoward experiment.' "'Patience, patience,' replied the imperturbable Professor. "'I tell thee, my poor Giovanni, that Rappaccini has a scientific interest in thee. Thou hast fallen into fearful hands. And the Signora Beatrice, what part does she act in this mystery?' But Guasconti, finding Baglioni's pertinacity intolerable, here broke away, and was gone before the professor could again seize his arm. He looked after the young man intently, and shook his head. "'This must not be,' said Baglioni to himself. "'The youth is the son of my old friend, and shall not come to any harm from which the arcana of medical science can preserve him. Besides, it is too insufferable an impertinence in Rappaccini thus to snatch the lad out of my own hands, as I may say, and make use of him for his infernal experiments. This daughter of his, it shall be looked to. Perchance, most learned Rappaccini, I may fool you where you had little dream of it. End of Part One